Good evening. It's good to see each of you here, as well as those of you who are viewing by live stream. I'm David King, and I serve here at Christ Church as assistant to the pastor. And we have been looking in John's gospel at the seven predicated, seven predicated I am sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me in it this evening to the 14th chapter of the gospel according to John. John chapter 14. Now we come this evening to the sixth of these predicated utterances of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the sixth chapter of, or sixth verse of chapter 14. The Lord Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this utterance of our Lord Jesus Christ is found in a very distinct context, which can be described as more pastoral than that of being evangelistic. And I trust we'll see that this evening and how relevant our Lord's words are here to his troubled disciples. Hear the word of God, John chapter 14, beginning with verse 1 through to verse 11. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I, would I have told you that I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Would you pray with me and ask God's blessing upon this, the ministry of his word? Let us pray. O Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence tonight. Lord, we are conscious of the words of your Son who said, Without me, you can do nothing. And so, Father, we would at the very beginning cry out to you for the gracious assistance of your Spirit, that he would come and be pleased to give seed to the sower and bread to the eater and accomplish the purpose for which you've sent your word to us. And Father, we ask as humbly as we know how that it would run and accomplish its course and not return to you void. And we plead all of these mercies in the name of your matchless Son, even Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This sixth I am utterance of our Lord Jesus Christ, it engages the world's multi-faith head on. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To be sure, there is no ambiguity here in the language of our Lord. He is setting himself forth, not as one of many ways, but as the only way to the Father. He's not simply the Christian way to the Father, distinct from the Buddhist way or the Islam way or the Hindu way. No, he is the only way to the Father. If anyone is to come to the Father, then they must come through Jesus, who is the Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the only propitiation for sin. And this sixth I am utterance is most objectionable to this multi-faith world in which we live today. And which cannot conceive, let alone believe, that there cannot be but one way to the Father. But the reason why there is but one way to the Father, as this passage makes very clear to us, is because, first of all, Jesus alone is the faithful and true representation of the Father. He who has seen me, he says to Philip, has seen the Father. There is not a different, different kind of the Father lurking, lurking in the shadows behind the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the faithful and true revelation of the Father. I and the Father am one, John 10, 30. He who has seen me has seen the Father. But secondly, he is the one and only way to the Father. Because he is the one who became for all who believe the propitiation for sin. And sin is that radical barrier which separates God from us and us from God. And there's this infinite distance then between the Holy One who inhabits eternity and we who are fallen in Adam. And who in thought, word, and deed break the holy commandments of God every day. 
But Jesus Christ has come from the bosom of the Father, that is, from the very heart of the Father, that he might in himself make atonement for sin. But let's consider more carefully tonight, notice the context in which we have this particular utterance of our Lord. What do you do when your whole world comes crashing in? What do you do when your world implodes upon you? That is the context for these disciples in which the Lord Jesus Christ uttered these words to them. Indeed, from chapter 14 on through to chapter 16, Jesus is ministering to his despondent, disturbed, and distracted, perplexed disciples. Their hearts are deeply troubled because our Lord has already indicated to them in the closing words of the previous chapter, as well as here on the very eve of his crucifixion, that he is about to leave them. He has indicated to them as well in the 13th chapter that the scene in which he is going to depart from them and yet remain with them in the presence of the Spirit is one that will be an occasion of great sadness for them, which in the long run will prove to be a far more desirable state. But of course, so downcast are they at the moment that they cannot even begin to think in those particular terms. The bottom has fallen out of their world. They have been with him for nearly three years now. And in those three years, the Lord Jesus has been everything to his disciples. They have come to believe and embrace his claim to be the very Messiah of the only true and living God. The long promised one, the hope of Israel. But now, here they are in their despondency, feeling that the bottom of their world has fallen out. And Jesus now assumes what we would describe as a pastoral posture. And he's seeking to help to comfort them in the midst of their despondency. So how is he going to help them? How is the Lord Jesus going to minister comfort to these disciples in the midst of their distress and sorrow? Well, he has many things to say to them as the chapters 14 through 16 lay out for us in the Gospel of John. But in all of them, in all of these words that he utters in these chapters, the Lord Jesus Christ is seeking, if you please, to do but one thing. There is one preeminent thing that the Lord Jesus Christ is seeking to do, and he does it in a multitude of different ways. He is seeking to ground and reassure their minds and their hearts in the glory and in the grace of God. That is chapters 14 through 16 in the nutshell. He is ministering comfort to them by sinking, seeking to sink their sorrow of mind and heart down into the glory and grace of God. 
Again, look at how the chapter begins. Let not your heart be troubled. Here they are, troubled, inwardly, agitated. They're perplexed. And how does Jesus respond to them? Believe in God. Believe also in me. He points them to God. He points them to himself. It's in the imperative mode. It's a command that the Lord Jesus ministers here. And he's saying to these men, nothing will support you more. Nothing will keep you and hold you any surer than your confidence and trust in me. Nothing more will help to sustain and undergird you and fortify your souls as well as enlarge your view and understanding of God than this. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm reminded here of some words of John Owen in the first volume of his work from his treatise on the glory of Christ. He was writing about the Lord Jesus' oneness with the Father in our flesh. And he says, This glory is the glory of our religion, the glory of the church, the sole rock we're on. It is built. It is the only spring of present grace and future glory. Now, in these preceding verses, the Lord Jesus has assured his disciples that he's going to the Father's house in order to prepare a place for them. And now Jesus tells them that they know the way to where he is going. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, he explains, and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. You know the way. And it's at this point of the exchange that Thomas raises his voice and he says, Lord We do not know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus' response to Thomas is in essence this. Thomas, you know far more than you think you know. I am the way. I am the way. And he brings this home to the heart of Thomas. Now, if you're familiar with the flow of the gospel narratives, not only in John, but in all of the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, you will know that Jesus has been carefully instructing his disciples that the way back to the Father's house for him and for all whom he represented would be the way of suffering and shame followed by a way of resurrection and glory. Jesus was instructing his disciples in these terms. Remember how he does so at least on three occasions. Jesus tells his disciples, first of all, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. 
And we're told there he spoke this word openly. Then he says it again here. The way you know. And a little earlier in John's gospel, chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, The hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So Jesus says, and where I go, you know, and the way, you know, you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas objects. He says, we don't know the way. And Jesus reassures him, as it were, Thomas, you do know the way you do. You see, they did and they didn't know the way at one and the same time. The pace of events, the drama of the moment, the distractions of their sorrow, as well as the work of Satan. And they had been overcome by all of that in their sorrow. And they were losing sight of that which they truly knew. It's a very striking reality, is it not? That the best and the most privileged of Christian believers can become so overwhelmed by their circumstances that they can, in the crucible of such a moment, forget some of the most basic truths of the Christian faith. Have you not experienced that from time to time in your own life? I certainly have in my own Christian experience. Satan is a past master at using distractions such as sorrow and sadness so to overwhelm us in such circumstances that our minds become disturbed and we lose sight and sense of the most basic and the most precious of biblical truths. And so it is here with Thomas. We don't know the way. Their minds are clouded, you see, by the fog of sadness. So what does Jesus do? Well, please notice, first of all, what he does not do. He doesn't berate or belittle Thomas for his spiritual dullness. Now, to be sure, there are times when our Lord offers such a rebuke or admonition. But here, obviously conscious of just how fragile and despondent and distracted they are, our Lord doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't quench a smoking flax. Rather than berate Thomas for his spiritual dullness, Jesus refocuses the conversation. And patiently and pastorally, he spells out, as it were, in capital letters, not his way to the Father, but their way to the Father. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, these are astonishing words, 
are they not? And I want for you, if you would, to consider with me just how astonishing they really are. Keep in mind that Jesus is ministering pastoral comfort to perplexed, distracted, and disturbed disciples. Now, I'm going to come back to this, but please keep it in the forefront of your mind that he's not showing or telling them how to engage men and women evangelistically. No, he is ministering the grace and the comfort of the gospel to distracted and despondent believers. And think for a moment just how extraordinary these words are. I am the way spoken by one whose way was the disgraceful shame of a Roman cross, the death of a despised, debased criminal in the eyes of men. I am the way. And I can't help but wonder as I contemplate these words, I wonder if in any measure they came back to the minds of the disciples when they looked upon the bleeding, broken form of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung lifeless on a Roman gibbet. He is the way to God. He is the way to God because he is the sin-bearing Savior. He is the wrath-removing Savior. It was the foolishness of the cross, the utter absurdity and folly of the cross, a crucified man, that God was bringing salvation into the midst of his fallen world. How is he the way to God, the one who dies this disgraceful, shameful death on the Roman cross? That was the execution of a despised and debased criminal. How could he be the way to God? Well, it's because in him, God was accomplishing the ultimate transaction of the ages. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How is he the way to God? He is that way to God. And when we read the word reconciliation or the word reconciled, as we come across that word in the New Testament scriptures, it might be helpful for you always to keep in mind that at the very heart of or the root of that word, whether it's in its verbal or in its noun form, uh, is the idea of exchange. The cross was the great place of exchange where God laid, imputed, counted to his son the sin that was ours and counted and imputed to us the righteousness that was his son's. The right hand of his blessing rested upon us while the left hand of his cursing and judgment rested Upon his son. And then the Lord Jesus says. I am the truth. Spoken by one. Who is about to be condemned. By the testimony. Of lying witnesses. Who was not even believed. By members of his own family. And yet he says. I am the truth. 
And he is the truth because he is the faithful, trustworthy revelation of God. As John expresses it in the opening prologue of his gospel, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has fully exegeted him. He has explained who he is in detail, has unpacked, declared, revealed him to us. He is the truth. He is the truth incarnate. He is the true revelation of God. He is the true disclosure of what we are before God. He is the truth. And think about it. When confronted with him, all the lies and superstitions and deceits of our lives, lies and of this world, they're exposed for what they are from the darkness in which they would otherwise seek to take refuge. And so he is the way spoken by the one whose way is that of disgrace and the shame of the cross. He is the truth spoken by one who is condemned by lying witnesses. And then he says, I am the life spoken by one whose lifeless, bruised corpse would soon hang on this Roman cross. How utterly, transcendently astonishing are these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the life. We know these words so well that they can roll off our tongues with such frequency that the contextual reality of them can easily be lost on us. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ facing the dark shadow of the cross looming over him with its shame and its ignominy. He'll soon hang bruised and battered lifeless on this Roman cross and he declares, I am the life. Now this threefold claim is staggering and the definite articles here are not accidental. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is not simply some pleasant alternative on the supermarket shelf of world religions. No, he's claiming an exclusivity here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's consider for just a moment what our Lord Jesus is saying to his disciples and what he is expressing to us as well. The first thing, and I touched upon this earlier, but I want to just develop it a little further if I could. Notice our Lord is addressing first and foremost his disciples. These words were not first spoken as an evangelistic appeal to unbelievers, but as a pastoral reassurance to disturbed and despondent believers. In the opening verses of the chapter, Jesus has made these men great promises. He's going to prepare a place for them in the Father's house. He's going to come again and receive them unto himself that they may be with him. These are wonderful promises. And then Jesus responds to Thomas and he says, as it were, here is what you need to know, Thomas. Thomas. 
This is what you need to know in this life. I am the way. In other words, he's saying to his despondent disciples that the Father's house is their assured destiny. Because he's saying, I am the one and only way to the Father. This is quintessential pastoral ministry on the part of the Lord Jesus. This is how Jesus always went about ministering pastorally to his disturbed and troubled disciples. He always directed them to himself. And as he directed them to himself, he revealed more of himself to them. Would to God... I thought about this in my preparation. Would to God, and I'm not talking about the majority, well, maybe some of our reform institutions could, could learn something here, but would to God that not only the reform, but many other theological institutions could understand, as well as in our pulpits, that the theology, indeed the theology of the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ, is what more than anything else will minister to the hearts of troubled disciples. To have men point us to Christ. That's why John Owen said that the oneness of our Lord Jesus with the Father in our flesh is the glory of our religion. It is the glory of the church. It is the sole rock we're on. It is built. And Jesus is expounding, exegeting himself to his disciples here. You see, the despondency that can so overwhelm us as it sought to overwhelm them is always because, and I pray I choose these words carefully, it is always because to a greater or lesser extent we have lost sight and sense of our Savior. When we lose sight of who Christ is and what He is to us, we can so easily become overcome. The great Spiritual antidote to despondency is, is not some this or that series of therapy, but Jesus Christ himself. And here it is his unique access to the Father. Thomas belonged to Christ and Jesus is telling Thomas, Thomas, it's enough for you to understand, for you to know that I am am the way to the Father. And here in his unique role in ministry as the appointed mediator between God and man, this is what Thomas and the others needed to understand. But it could be many things. Perhaps at times it's not so much the mediatorial glory of Christ that we need to grasp afresh. It could be His omnipotence. It could be we need to grasp afresh His sovereignty. Perhaps His unfailing presence. His, his precious promises to His people. His gentleness. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle 
and lowly in heart. Sometimes it's the amazing grace of his forgiveness. And sometimes it's simply the unfailing assurance of his covenant love to us. But that is how Jesus is ministering to these despondent disciples who are troubled. Lay hold afresh, he is saying, of who your Lord Jesus is. I am the way to the Father. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All will be well for you. Why? Because of who I am. Jesus is saying. But then the next thing Jesus underscores here is the personal relational heart of true biblical religion. And we've seen this reality again and again repeatedly in our studies of these great I am utterances of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a philosophy to embrace or an ideal to which to aspire and cherish or an ethical code to adopt and follow. Now, to be sure, there is a philosophy and there is an ideal and there is an ethical code. But Christianity, as we have seen over and over again, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is everything that the Father has to give to this broken, fallen world. Outside of Him, there is nothing that the Father in heaven has to give to fallen humanity. All that the Father has to give is bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the gospel. And that's why again and again we find these are amazing words in the gospels. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Come to me personally. He's representing himself as the ultimate end. And I personally believe that there is no greater reality that for a Christian to begin to grasp than that. And dear parents, this is a very practical word to our parents. As you nurture and raise your children in the things of God, above everything else, you need to teach them. Above all else, you need to teach them this. The reality that Jesus Christ is everything. Christ is everything. Teach them that over and over and over again. I remember many times when my daughter was little and I knelt down beside her to pray with her at night. I would pray, God, give her a heart to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's everything. He's everything. I recall as a young Christian how many of my friends and peers, they would emphasize to me that, that as a Christian, I need to be seeking this or that experience. I need to be seeking this or that blessing. And I don't remember how long it took me to realize that it is Christ in all the fullness of who he is was that 
That was all that I needed. And I remember folk my age telling me, oh, but you need to enter in the fullness of the gospel. And this other experience is what you need to seek. And then over a period of time, it began to dawn on me that in Jesus Christ, God has given us everything. Everything. That truth alone exposes the sham of the so-called prosperity gospel and the TV charlatans who've long since lost if they ever knew the way in the first place. In the language of Ephesians 1 and verse 3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. In Him we have everything God has to give. Now the rest of our lives and the remainder of eternity will be an exploration of that. But Jesus Christ, make no mistake, is the gospel. And I believe grasping that will do far more force than anything else. It will rescue us from seeking out this or that experience. The greatest experience to be had is Plumbing the depth of the incarnate God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've noticed in reading sections of Owen's uh, volume on the glory of Christ that he emphasizes repeatedly how we ought to ponder and meditate upon Christ. Not simply acknowledging him in our heads or even in our hearts that this is true and that this is right. But spending time applying our minds and our hearts to the infinite death of the, of the Christ of God, the Lord Jesus. And then very briefly, we see again in these words that Jesus is expressing his self-conscious sense of who he is and what he had come into the world to do. We cannot read these words except in the light of all that has gone before. And again, especially in the light of the opening verses of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Jesus speaks in John 14 as the one who is self-conscious of his identity as the incarnate God. These are not the words of some religious idealist because he did not come to show us the way. He came to be the way. He is, says the writer to the Hebrews, the new and living way by whom we come to God. Hebrews 10 verse 20. It is a blood-sprinkled way. It is the way of blood atonement. It is the glory of the cross. And that's the wonder of it all. And that's moreover what this world cannot even begin to fathom. Until God in His great mercy and kindness begins to open people's eyes like that blind man in John 9. And he says, once I was blind. But now I see when such grace is omnipotently applied to the heart of a believer, Jesus Christ becomes the passion 
of their lives. He becomes the mediator by whom they can come to God. He becomes the propitiation for their sins. Now, though the context of this passage is to be sure a pastoral scene, I've emphasized that repeatedly tonight, which are, in which our Lord is ministering comfort to his despondent disciples. But let me underscore this as I close. Its, in, its implications for evangelism are nonetheless quite evident, are they not? For if Jesus Christ alone is the way, then the way is not in us. We're all lost men and women, boys and girls. And if Jesus Christ is the truth, the truth is not in us. We're all ignorant men and women, boys and girls. And if Jesus Christ is the life, then the life is not in us. We're all dead men and women, boys and girls, all of us in desperate need of him who is the way, the truth, and the life. And if the Lord Jesus Christ is these three things, these three things in himself and in himself exclusively, then these are humbling realities for the sinner, are they not? Because it exposes the sham that his life is. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ comes with these humiliating assertions that we have no power in ourselves to construct our own elevator to heaven. As Isaiah put it, we have turned everyone to his own way. We have no built-in capacity to judge the truth, let alone to discern it. Sin has darkened our minds, clouded our judgment, has alienated us from the life of God so that we are by nature without God in the world. And our only hope tonight, yours and mine, is for God to impart to us the grace to look beyond and outside of ourselves to the one who commanded light to shine out of darkness, that he would shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He and he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Let us pray.